It's good to be with you all again today. Over the past month, we've been in a series just reminding ourselves of the vision of Apex, reminding ourselves of what we're about. And of course, the big thing is uh, discipleship. And we've heard uh, just different expressions of it from family ministry and how discipleship works within the gathering space as well as going and growing. And those are very important. Um, those have been very important discussions. And so I would encourage any of you, if, if you missed any of those weeks, to uh, go to the website, apex.church, and, and go and watch those. They're just, it's just really important for us to remember um, what it is that we are about. But today, we continue our series in the book of Acts. So if you would open up in your scriptures to Acts chapter 14, and we will be starting in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had the faith to be healed, and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy." Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. And after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Well, we may not always be conscious of it, but at some point in our lives, every human being has sought justification for our existence. We want to know that our life means something. We want to have a sense of identity, a sense of self, a sense of purpose. We want to know that we matter. And, and this um, was expressed a number of times throughout uh, the Rocky movies. And Rocky one, Rocky Balboa is having a conversation with his girlfriend, Adrian. He says, yo, Adrian, no, I'm not gonna. <laughs> but he said, basically, 
he had this big fight coming up with the champion, Apollo Creed. And he says, you know, I don't even feel like I have to beat Apollo Creed. I just have to do what no one else has done, go 15 rounds with him. If I can go 15 rounds with him, I'll prove that I ain't no bum. Well, later on in the Rocky mythology, with a more recent movie called Creed, Rocky is no longer the boxer, but now he's the trainer. And he's the trainer of a young man named Adonis Creed, who is the son of Rocky's one-time rival and friend, Apollo Creed. But Adonis was the result of an extramarital affair that Apollo Creed had, and he never met his father before his death, but he always felt like he was living in his shadow. And as he has his own big fight toward the end of the movie, things aren't going so well. And in between rounds, Rocky's talking to Adonis, and Rocky says, look, I should have thrown in the towel when your dad was fighting and the night that he was killed in the ring. I should have thrown in the towel then. I'm going to throw in the towel tonight. And Adonis says, no, don't do it. I have to prove it. I have to prove what, Rocky said. I have to prove that I'm not a mistake. So whether it's proving that you ain't no bum or proving that you're not a mistake, we all seek justification for our existence. We're all looking for the verdict. But the problem is what we often do is that we put the verdict in the hands of other people what they think about us, what they say about us, how they treat us. If only I win seven Super Bowls, people will call me the greatest of all time, but then I can justify my existence. But the problem with putting the verdict in the hands of other people is that it's, it's just a lousy place to get an identity. You know why? Well, in part, because people are fickle. As we learn from the passage that we just read and the passage that Aaron shared with us earlier, people are fickle. There's just no stability there. One minute, people want to worship you like a god, and the next minute, they're trying to kill you. Good luck getting an identity there. There's no stability. And so I want to walk through this narrative again, offer some commentary, and then we'll come back to this idea of having the verdict. So. Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra, they're, they're preaching the good news, and they heal a man who's been crippled from birth. Now, at this point in the book of Acts, this is no surprise to us. We've seen this kind of thing before. And how things usually go is that somebody gets healed, and the, the, a crowd witnesses this, and they say, what does this mean? And the apostle will have an opportunity to declare the good news of the kingdom, and many people usually come to believe in the name of Jesus. Well, that's not quite what happens here. The crowd here doesn't ask, what does this mean? They come to their own conclusions about what it means. They say, the gods have taken human form, and they have visited us. And so Barnabas, they call Zeus, or Jupiter to the Romans, and Paul, they called Hermes or Mercury to the Romans. And perhaps 
This has to do a little bit with a, a local story, something they had in mind told a generation before by a Latin poet named Ovid, who recorded a story about Zeus and um, Hermes coming disguised as travelers, coming in human form, and they were looking for Xenia. Not a city near here, but Xenia, hospitality. They're looking for hospitality. And they, um, they were only met, and this was the area, nearby area of Phrygia, but they were met with closed doors until they came to the house of this elderly couple named Philemon and Baucis, who showed them hospitality. So as a result, uh, Zeus and Hermes took Philemon and Baucis up a mountain, and as they turned around, they saw that the gods had flooded the entire area and killed everyone who didn't show them hospitality. But they saw that their own humble abode had grown to this large, ornate temple where they were now to live. And so the people of Lystra, knowing this story, see this amazing thing happen, and they're probably thinking, we probably better show some hospitality. So the priest of Zeus comes with wreaths and, and a bull to sacrifice to uh, Paul and Barnabas, and, and they're doing this all in their native language, but eventually Paul and Barnabas put two and two together, and they're horrified. They tear their clothes and say, no, don't do this. We're men just like you. We've, we've come with, with good news that there's one God, and one God is the Lord of heaven and earth and the sea. You, you don't have to worry about which God you're going to appease that day, Zeus today, Poseidon tomorrow. No, there's one God, and he has for generations let the nations do their own thing when he disinherited them at Babel, but he is taking the nations back. And he's wanting, to, he's wanting you to hear him and to come to him. And he has left himself with a testimony in giving you rain and giving you crops and having you actually enjoy your food. Have you ever, have you ever thought about what a gift it is that we enjoy food? Maybe some of you have experienced something recently where you haven't been able to taste your food. And when you can't taste your food, eating just becomes a chore. But this is a sign of what we can theologians have called common grace. And Paul's using common grace here as a point of contact with his people. Because, you know, in the synagogues with the Jews, he would argue from the scriptures. That's not an option for these people, this people here. They don't have a category of the scriptures. Genesis 1-1 would mean nothing to them. But through their experience of common grace, Paul's pointing to this God has been reaching out to you. Luke perhaps is paraphrasing Paul here, but it seems Paul doesn't even get to Jesus. <laughs> the people are insistent in offering sacrifices to them until Jews come from Iconium and Antioch, where they were recently before. And somehow, I'd, I'd be really interested in this conversation, somehow they were able to turn the crowd against them. I mean, how does that work? One minute they're ready to worship them, and the next minute, they're not even neutral about them. They're not even saying, well, maybe they're not Paul, and, or maybe they're not Zeus and Hermes. They turned like, completely against them. I mean, do you not remember they did heal someone among you? You got to give them some credit, right? But the thanks they get for healing someone among them is to take Paul and to stone him. So they drag him outside the city, they stone him, and they leave him for dead. But 
Paul survives. He, he, he dusts himself off and he continues his mission. He's not sitting there sulking, saying, oh, well, no one likes me. And no one's going to listen to me. And no one's going to listen to the gospel I have to share. I guess I should just go home. He keeps going with his mission. Because he wasn't defined, neither in his sense of self or in his purpose, by what others thought about him. He wasn't affected by flattery or antagonism. But how? How did, how did he get to be like this? Because let's face it, and let's be honest, it's way more natural for us to want the approval of other people. It's way more natural to want people's admiration. We want people to be in awe of us. Now, you might think, well, it's not like we want them to, people to worship us like they did Paul and Barnabas, but let's be honest, we want something pretty close. I mean, this is why so many people want to be famous. How do I know that? Well, you have these shows, American Idol, America's Got Talent, The Voice, and they have these auditions and people line up for city blocks just for the opportunity, not even a guarantee, but for the opportunity to audition. And then they're not guaranteed to get an audition. They're not guaranteed to get on the show. They're not guaranteed to advance several rounds, and they're sure not guaranteed to win it. And even if they do win it, they're not guaranteed to become household names. I mean, can you name three people who've won these shows? But why is it? It's for even the taste, uh, even the, the hint of some kind of fame. And see, it's driven by our pride. It's driven because our ego is like an empty bag, a ravenous stomach. And our pride tells us that if we get the praises and the admiration of people, then we'll be satisfied. We'll have the verdict that we've been looking for. Well, maybe for some of us, we're not so concerned about being famous, but we want to be right. And pride affects the way that we argue. Now, I'm not saying that we should abandon all persuasive endeavors. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching for crying out loud. That preaching in a lot of ways is a persuasive endeavor. But there's a way that our pride and our ego can drive us to argue to where it no longer becomes about the argument or the merits of the argument or that the world would be a better place or someone would benefit by believing in an argument. Our pride drives us to the point where the argument becomes about us and about being offended that someone would disagree with us. You don't think I'm smart? You don't think I've given this some thought? And so we dig in deeper and deeper into that argument because not so much that we're going for this person's admiration, but this person needs to understand that we are intellectually superior to them, and that feeds our ego. See, pride is competitive. It's not just about being famous. It's about being more famous than the next person. It's not about being rich. It's about being richer than your neighbors. It's not about being smart. It's about being smarter than the person you're arguing with. It's a comparison game. It's about being on top. 
Well, speaking of being on top, if you were around in the mid to late 90s, in terms of uh, a musician, there was probably no more famous musician in that era than Alanis Morissette. Her um, album, Jagged Little Pill, sold 15 million copies and spent 12 weeks at number one. Well, more recently, in 2012, she was doing an interview with The Telegraph, and here's what she says about fame. She says, I want to poke holes in the erroneous beliefs about what fame provides. It won't raise your self-esteem. It won't create profound connection. It's not going to heal your childhood traumas. It's only going to amplify them. You are going to be subject to a lot of criticism and praise, both of which are violent in their own ways. So she says that people pursue fame, but it doesn't fix them. It only makes things worse. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? But she, but she points out that both criti criticism and praise are both violent in their own ways. Well, how is praise violent? Well, praise in of itself isn't a bad thing. It's about what your ego does with it. And what can happen is that you can allow the praises of others to fill your ego and to overinflate you. And what do we know about balloons? The more they're inflated. Well, the more they're inflated, the more, the more vulnerable they are to be deflated. The more sensitive they are to the slightest prick of criticism, completely leaving them deflated. So what do we do about this, about this thing with our ego, about this thing of longing for the admiration of other people? You know, how do we handle this? Well, one suggestion given by several counselors or by our culture in general with the advertising is, you know, really about self-affirmation, about loving yourself and believing in yourself. And so a counselor may say something to you like, it doesn't matter what other people think. All that matters is what you think. You give yourself the verdict. You give yourself that sense of identity. Now, it sounds good, but it's a trap. You see, because just like there's no stability in the verdict that other people can give you is because people are fickle, you're fickle too. There are days where you wake up and look in the mirror and you say, Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Other days, it feels like Psalm 22, I am a worm and not a man, and you want to crawl into a hole. See, you, don't, you know that you can't live up to other people's standards. You can't even live up to your own standards. Every time you say, you ought, you ought not, you should, you should not, you say that to other people, you don't live up to those things and you know it. So what do you do from there? Adopt low standards? Well, then you can't feel good about yourself because you're a person with low standards. But here's the thing. We might tell ourselves, it doesn't matter what other people think. All that matters is what I think. But then, but then imagine you post something like that on social media. I don't care what others think. All I care about is what I think. And you know what's going to happen? People who think the same way 
are going to like that. And all you've done in ignoring one group, you, you've traded one community, one support system, one group of cheerleaders for another. And people have done this for a long time. This is true of the counterculture of, of the 60s, the hippies, and later with the punk rockers of the 70s. They're all saying, we reject society, we don't care what others think, but then they go form an, a, a little subculture where they all dress alike and think alike. And if you don't think there's an orthodoxy to those systems that, that won't leave you exiled. And then today in our culture, we, we have this, we don't care about what others think, all we care about is what we think. And there's definitely an orthodoxy to uh, modern culture. And you have to believe the right things and say the right things, lest you get exiled to canceled island. So it's a trap. Finding an identity from your own self, it, it's a trap. So where, so where do we go? Where can we get an identity if we can't get it from other people and we can't get it from ourselves? It has to come from outside of us, but we can't depend on other people, so where do we go? Where we need an identity is we need the adoration of somebody that we adore. And we need that person to be, that, that someone to be stable and unchanging. You may be familiar with a little pamphlet written by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in it, he focuses on 1 Corinthians 4, and he points out some of the legal, judicial language that Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3, Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. So he says, I don't care about what y'all think. He says, indeed, I don't even judge myself. I don't really care about what I think. I have a low opinion about my opinion about myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And he doesn't say this with fear or alarm, but with confidence. The Lord judges me. I, I can look for the verdict in all these places, but the only verdict that is going to count is the verdict that the Lord has given me. And because Jesus has taken the verdict you deserve to give you the verdict that he deserves, we have the verdict we've always looked for. And, and what is that verdict? That verdict is... Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The verdict is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How's that for a verdict? And getting this verdict from God to where God is now the center of your attention, God is now the judge of your life and not yourself, what it does is that it humbles you, but in a good way. Because usually when we think about humility, we think about low self-esteem or, or self-hatred. And humility is not low self-esteem. I mean, after all, was Jesus humble? Yeah. Did Jesus walk around talking about what a nobody he is? I'm not that important. No, he had an accurate view of himself. 
And that's part of what it is to be humble. And this, we have resources of humility at the cross. Because what the cross does at the same time is, one, the cross exposes us. It, it says that the, the worst rumors that could be whispered about you are shouted through a megaphone at the cross. This is the kind of death that Chad Osborne deserves because that's the kind of person he is. So it could keep you from being overinflated. But at the same time, this is how loved Chad Osborne is by the Father. Behold what manner the love of Father has given to us, that we should be sons of God. So the cross simultaneously humbles us and affirms us. It gives us an accurate view of ourselves. And that's something we can't get from other people who will either overinflate you or seek to deflate you. It's the only verdict you will ever actually get that's a stable identity. C.S. Lewis also helps us with the humility thing. In his book, Mere Christianity, he has a chapter on pride called The Great Sin. But in it, he has a paragraph on humility, and he says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And this is where we get a quote that um, is often attributed to Lewis. I've attributed it to Lewis, but I've come to find out he didn't actually say it. But it's a paraphrase of this, and it's that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. He didn't say that. I'm blown away. It's a paraphrase of this, though. But it is. It's not, true humility is not thinking less of yourself and having low self-esteem and a kind of self-hatred and a self-depreciation of yourself. It's just that you're not the center of your universe to where you're not obsessed with thinking about yourself all the time. You're interested in other things. God is your center. That's where, and you get the verdict, you get your identity from him, and you're not constantly thinking about, well, how am I coming off to other people? Do they like me? It's thinking of yourself less. So, now I don't want to do this thing where I ask for a show of hands to see about who struggles with pride, because that would be embarrassing for everyone who keeps their hand down. <laughs> because the thing about pride is we can see it a mile away in other people. It's really hard for us to detect it in ourselves. We can't stand to see it in other people, but... Prideful, me? But I wonder how it shows up in your life, if you'd be willing to take, you know, the, the magnifying glass to it. Perhaps pride for you is you recognize you haven't come to speak to Jesus in a while because 
you feel like, you know, my life's pretty together. I've done well for myself. I have it all together, and that you've kind of, you're a self-made person, and so you have no need for Jesus, right? That's for, that's for desperate people. Or it's because life hasn't gone as you have hoped or expected, or it's not going as you think it ought to go, and so you're bitter and you're holding Jesus responsible. That's pride. Maybe it is this kind of like low self-esteem, self-hatred kind of thing, going like, I, I, I want to come to God, but I, but I can't. I'm not worthy. And so you put yourself in the seat that belongs to the judge. And you're judging yourself and not allowing yourself to go to God. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's worry, fear and worry that so many of us are dealing with these days. Well, what does fear and worry and worry have to do with pride? Well, fear is prideful overconfidence that you know how things are going to turn out. You're overrating your ability to predict the future. Maybe pride is a refusal to give or receive an apology. You're not willing to say you're sorry or you're not willing to forgive. And so there's, there's reconciliation that needs to happen, but in your pride, it's, it's, you don't want to leave yourself vulnerable because of pride. What does it look like? Pride takes a thousand ways, a thousand shapes. It's the gate to a thousand other sins. But what's pride looking like in you today? <clears throat> I want to give one final picture, and... Um, it also comes from C.S. Lewis. And I know, like, I mean, I could be tempted to think, like, you're all thinking, oh, he's leaning a lot on C.S. Lewis today. But if I'm going to follow my sermon, I don't really care about what you think. So, <clears throat> and I'm not the first to use this as an illustration, but you may be familiar with, in C.S. Lewis, the, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a young boy named Eustace. And Eustace is a selfish, greedy, kind of complaining little kid that, that nobody likes. And one day, he witnesses the death of an old dragon. And it begins to rain, and so he seeks shelter in the dragon's cave. He's like, well, the dragon's dead, so I'm pretty safe in here. But in that cave, he discovers dragon had a treasure. And he's thinking to myself, oh boy, I could really use this. Tax-free and all, you know? Like, and so he finds this bracelet that had you know, diamonds all around it, and he put it on, but his wrists were skinny, so he moved it all the way up his arm. And he fell asleep on the treasure with greedy, dragonous thoughts. But he woke up feeling a pain in his arm where he put the bracelet. He's thinking, oh, okay, I guess my arm's swollen somehow. But it wasn't just swollen. His arm was bigger because in that night, Eustace had turned into a dragon. And he got very lonely as a dragon, you know, cut off from the human world and unable to communicate. But on one particularly miserable night, Eustace was greeted by the lion called 
Aslan, the, the Jesus figure in the, uh, the Narnia series. And Aslan led this dragon, he led Eustace to a big well, a well that had marble steps going down into it. It was you know, more like a pool. And Eustace had the feeling that, oh, if I could only get into that pool, I think it would heal my arm. And so Aslan instructs him to take off your clothes. And he's thinking, well, I'm a dragon, and I'm not wearing clothes. But he remembers that you know, dragons are kind of like serpents, and serpents, you know, they shed their skin. So he starts clawing at himself, and these dragon scales are, are falling all about him. He, he's shedding himself uh, from, he's shedding the skin from himself, and so he gets ready to get in the pool, but he looks down, uh, and he's still a dragon. But he does two or three more rounds of this. He, he peels the skin, he peels the skin, he peels the skin, and he, and he, and he gets in the pool, but he notices it's, it's no use. He's still a dragon. But then Aslan says to him, you're going to have to let me do it. And he's describing what this was like to, um, to, to Edmund later on. And he said, Aslan took his claws and I felt like it was going to kill me. I felt like he had reached my heart. I felt like I was going to die. I felt, and, and it was so painful, so painful to have this lion shed, peel the skin off of me, peel off these dragon scales. But at the same time, it felt really good to have it come off. It was something like peeling a scab. But then, he, then the lion tossed me into the pool and I got out, and my arm was healed, and I, I was a boy again. Now, I think of that as an illustration of how pride is removed from our lives. Firstly, we have to let Jesus do it. And for Jesus to do it, he's going to have to cut you deep. He's going to have to get to your heart. Second, it's going to be painful. Nothing stickier than pride. It wants to cling to you. It's so hard to get rid of. But at the same time, nothing is more liberating. Pride, you know, pride, it hurts, but to be liberated from it, for you to finally put off pride and be clothed in humility, there's something about it. It's like a, it's like a deep massage. If you've ever had a deep massage, you go, Oh, that hurts, but it hurts so good. I think John Mellencamp gave us the language for that. It hurts, but it hurts so good. There's nothing more liberating from it. So let me ask you this. Is there anyone here today who wants to lose their dragon scales and you got to come to the lion? That's the invitation today. As the band, band you, if you're here in this, you can go ahead and come on up. As the band plays, I want, us to, I want you to consider this, that the, you know, what we mentioned before, the, the various ways that pride shows up in our lives, whether it's feeling like we have it all together or feeling like Jesus at the wheel is really screwing things up or whether it's fear or worry, prideful overconfidence in your ability to predict the future, or if it's will, unwillingness to forgive or to receive forgiveness. 
What is pride looking like in your life today? And let me say this, um, and, and I, you have to trust me that I'm not saying this to be manipulative, but if you know that you need to respond today, nothing will keep you in your seat like pride. So is there anyone here who wants to put away what other people think? to come and have your scales removed by the lion. We invite you to come. Come to this space here and someone will pray with you. There's nothing magical about this place. But I'll tell you what, I'm standing up here today. I get frustrated with life. I have complaints. But I want to be liberated from thinking that I know how my life ought to go. So when you're ready and you want to have your scales removed, come on up as the band plays.